Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, I speak with the editor-in-chief of Vogue Scandinavia, the 28th global edition of Vogue. We discuss why this is a special one. I also speak with the editor of the Bible for skateboarding, Thrasher magazine. And finally, a new photo book dedicated to newspapers and newsrooms. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, an exciting launch, Vogue Scandinavia. The new global edition of the iconic title will be in English and cover the region that is so heavily associated with sustainability. The first cover of the title is Swedish activist Greta Thunberg. But what to expect from the magazine? To find out more, I spoke to Vogue Scandinavia's editor-in-chief, Martina Bonnier. This is like one of the most common questions. Why don't you have a Vogue before? But I think that we are small countries. There has been talks about starting one in Sweden and Denmark. But when I got approached by Conde Nast doing this, I just knew that I wanted to do something very innovative. I wanted to take the whole thought about everything from sustainability, more detailed fashion journalism and so on into the future and do something different and that could live in a new format. So the first thing I, I told them was that I wanted to do it in English because we have five countries with five different cultures, languages, everything like that. So it's not only Scandinavia, it's actually Finland and Iceland as well. So the whole Nordic. Then I also wanted to have a digital-first approach with a very, very beautiful magazine, more like a coffee table book than a magazine. And a coffee table book, it is in the sense that every shopping page, all thing that is runway, everything that is small articles is not existing in the physical copy. We only have long reads, and full page imagery, it's for very slow reads. So everything else is online and online. Right now you can actually go in and try it, but we will put up paywalls and we are also very, very detailed in our journalism online. So I have 15 experts in areas as bags, shoes, eyewear, etc. And that's the only thing they write about online. So it's very much like a nerdy kind of, of fashion journalism online. I love the nerd type of, of <laughs> journalism. And it's interesting that everything you mentioned, I mean, you're a cover star, the, the, you know, the, the whole photo shoots, the interview, I think was so special and, and very beautiful as well. Such a kind of a dreamy, kind of almost magical kind of photo shoot. It was very special. Tell us about the choice for the first edition, which is always quite I'm sure it's quite a difficult one to think who is going to represent Vogue Scandinavia at the beginning of its life. Of course. And there is the, what I was thinking, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult task to do the first cover, of course, and, and set something about your values and your vision and all of that. But what I started thinking a lot about was the love of nature in the Nordic. It doesn't matter if you live in Finland or in Denmark, you will say that Nature is almost a religion to you. It's where you find creativity, peace of mind, inspiration. We always go out to the nature. Nature is very 
we also have, you know, the right, which is unique in the world to go around in nature and use nature if we are just respectful for it. So it's not like private. It's everybody owns the nature here. And that's also why I think we are so many years ahead when it comes to sustainability. That is also one of the big news that I have introduced in Vogue Scandinavia is that I've said no to the mass industry that it actually is. Because when you produce magazines today, you printed it in enormously copies and then you send and distribute it out to, I don't know how many newsstands and shops all over. And the reality of this is that more than 60% usually comes back in returns and goes to waste. When I realized this, I was like, I don't want to be part of it. It just felt so wrong. So therefore I, I decided to just print very limited copies. People ask me, what do you do if it, if it's, you know, it's finished. I said, yeah, it's finished. And then you can't buy it anymore. It will take a while because it has to do with print machines and all of that to be more print of demand. That's my goal, my dream. But we have started to just sell. That's why I, maybe you don't have a copy yet because you actually need to go into our 3D store online to order your copy. So we actually know exactly how many copies that goes out and to whom and how we send them. We are the first to be totally plastic free because as you know, if you're a subscriber, you send out a magazine, it comes in a plastic bag. This is big automatic machines that does this. So it's, it's really hard to change this. But I have a lovely collaboration together with Stora Enso, which is the second largest first company in the world. 80% of the area in the Nordics is actually forest. So it was, was very interesting to work together. So we innovated a new packaging system, which is renewable paper packaging. So every magazine that goes out, if you order it online, comes in a paper package. But of course, the nature and sustainability is, we have four pillars in the magazine. It's nature, it's tech, because in the Nordics, we are very tech savvy. We have a lot of very good, interesting tech companies, startups that I work with, and we are early adopters. And then we have sustainability and also diversity and inclusiveness and being very transparent. So these four things. And then I started to think like, who can incorporate this in a person? And that's where Greta came into the discussion, of course, and, and her being Swedish as well. And the funny thing about this is because normally when you do a Vogue cover, it's all fashion approach. And it's always a fashion photographer that did this. But I had a relationship since way back with Matthias Klum and his wife, Iris Alexander Klum. And Matthias, he's been a photographer, a nature photographer for more than 25 years, working for National Geographic, doing, you know, tons of covers. And mostly he shoots animals, of course. Matthias and I was talking about like, what's the difference of looking an animal in the eye and a model in the eye, like Yule. And, and it became like a very interesting conversation. And of course, he is also an environmentalist. So it was the combination to get Greta because she does only the things that she wants to do. Of course, it was the combination of us coming in with a photographer that already 
is working so much for the environment and knowing so much about it and is an authority in, it, in its own right. And not just talking about sustainability, but actually proving that we could do something, that we actually did change. We are very transparent about the footprint we do on Earth with the production. We do change things and we wanted to open up a discussion and she just liked it. I said, of course, if you want to do a change, open up and why don't criticize your own business? You know, like, because I think that is the only way to take small steps in the right direction. It was all those things. So, so the cover in itself, there's three things, the human, and that is Greta. It's the animal. It's actually the Icelandic horse. And then it is the nature in itself. So this unity and all the values that comes with it, it's what we see ourselves as. So that's the story behind the, the cover. And as I was telling you in the beginning, I think the imagery is, is just very wonderful. And of course, it is more kind of a coffee table book in a way than always the magazine. I, I really loved it. And I think it was a very clever choice for, for the first edition. How do you think this would differ from other Vogue's? Because it feels quite a personal project, very much connected to Scandinavia in a way. Can you tell us if there is any difference or how would you cooperate with the other international Vogue's as well? We are very different from, especially the wholly owned, because we are in licensee. I approached the whole thing and said that if this is going to succeed, we need to do it differently because this market is so different. And also, I think it was an urge and proudness to kind of show the world what Scandinavia is about when it comes to fashion, design and values, lifestyle, all of that. And it makes it so much easier when you do it in English. Everybody here in the Scandinavian countries learn English so early. Practically everybody speaks it, so it's not so strange. But what has happened from the first issue is that we already have a big market that is international. It's almost uh, 30% from day one. Of course, different from a normal world because it's more local to that country, to that region. But I think we are in a bit, in a way, also a little bit of a guinea pig in, in this because... We can try out things. And I know Condé Nast have already said, like, if there's any region in the world where you can actually change faster than other places, they thought it would be here in, this, in Scandinavia. And I, I think they are right. And that's been my approach. My goal is to do more local produced things. I don't want to be part of, you know, this where you actually send clothes and models and photographers all over the world and the budgets are over the top. And it's not like, it's not like we don't want to have big budgets. It's just like, why? People don't even, you know, they don't know why. It's just the way they do it. And I, I want to stop and say, but why do we do it? Can we do it differently? Can we be more respectful? Can we, you know, be more thoughtful? And my answer is yes, we can. And, and this is what we try to do. That was Martina Bonnier, Editor-in-Chief of Vogue Scandinavia. And talking about iconic titles, very happy to say that I also spoke with the Editor-in-Chief of Thrasher magazine, the well-known skateboarder's bible, founded in the early 80s. Michael Burnett was always interested in the world of skateboarding and says the magazine is for all those interested in it, not only the experts. He tells me more about his experience with the title. I got into skating because I saw Back to the Future 
the movie with uh, Michael J. Fox gets pulled behind a car on a skateboard. And that was the first time I'd seen like tricks and I'd seen like the wide boards so that captured my imagination as a kid. As I got older, I, I never grew out of it. I got more and more interested. So I saw Thrasher for the first time in maybe 1987. I saw him at, at the time before the internet, it was like, there wasn't a lot of information, especially I grew up in Texas, which is not like, it's a, not a very progressive state. You know, it's a pretty conservative place. So to find a magazine with pictures and stories was a, a huge, huge eye-opening experience for me as a kid. So yeah, that was kind of the start. Amazing. And, and you basically started your career as a, as a photographer, you used to take pictures of skaters there as well. And I think that's how perhaps the magazine paid attention to your work. And, you know, and, and here you go. Yeah, well, sort of. I made what's called a zine which is like a fanzine. It's like a homemade magazine. There's still lots of people doing this today, but especially pre-internet, this was the way you got the word out. So I was at university in Colorado at the time. So I just made my own little zine and I would mail it to everybody, all the skaters, all the skate companies I knew of. So from the beginning, I liked the whole process. I liked the design. I liked writing. I liked photography. So I had a few things run in the magazine. While I was still in school and then when I graduated, I was like, hey, can I have a job? Can I have a job? Can I have a job? And Jake Phelps, the editor, finally said if I moved to Southern California and they would give me a small retainer every month. So that's how I started. But I always liked everything, not just the photography. And I'm still a photographer. I still shoot photos for the magazine. And tell us about the importance of the print titles. Because of course, Treasure, you know, I had a look, I mean, you have quite a big online presence as well. But, you know, of course, the iconic print title is still there, still looking beautiful. I love the covers, by the way. I mean, I, I think they're fantastic. But tell us about the importance of the print title. It's kind of the backbone of the operation because, you know, we're this brand that's been around since 1981. So it's like the magazine is like the heart of the operation. You know, we're going to always make that magazine. It's like something you can hold in your hand. You can tear the picture out. It can put it on your wall. It's just that kind of experience. That said, we're not afraid of the new technology, you know, like obviously we go crazy with video, we go crazy with YouTube, we go crazy with social media. It doesn't really matter to me. Like I'm not like one's better than the other. It's more like being excited about skating, being excited about the imagery and the stories we want to tell and the skaters we know and just being a part of it. So whenever the tool is, Thrasher will make it part of what we do because we're, we're stoked about skating, but the magazine, yeah, you know, it's a different experience. You sit down with it. It's a more intimate experience. It's a slower experience, but it's also just so tangible. And I think for people who appreciate that, it's very important. And Michael, one interesting thing about skateboarding, I mean, of course, it's always been there. I'm not saying it's, of course, it's definitely not a new thing, but I feel there's such a young generation, even from the country that I am from, Brazil, of those young kids interested in skateboarding. And, and it's fantastic that there is a platform, Thrasher, because of course you have kind of your older readers, but I'm sure skateboarding is attracting also this younger audience. They want the lifestyle as well of skateboarding. I think it's fascinating, right? I think it's always, I mean, the kids are always going to run it, you know, like that's where the energy is because... The way skateboarding works, there's not really a league. There's not really teams like that for most people. So it's like you make it up with your friends. 
So it's an extension of your neighborhood friends. It's an extension of how you play with your friends, but it's also an adventure and it's also very exciting. And it's also like you explore when, when I was a kid, you explore the city, you know, every part, because you're always looking for something to skate. You're always looking for the new obstacle. And then it's like, for people, it's your physical challenge. It's like testing yourself, you know, young men and women, they want to test themselves just like the Cowboys or, you know, people in war. It's like, that's the time when you, you really test yourself. So it has all that stuff at the same time. It's like, because you do it for fun, right? That's why you do it. 99% of the people, the payoff is the activity. It's just that you have the money. You just do it because you like it, you know? So because of that, it lets people get really creative. And so people create their own music, people create their own artwork, people create the tricks, the physicality of it, or they discover an old trick and make a new version of it. I understand why it attracts kids because there's a lot of kids who, you know, they don't want football practice. They have enough rules at school, so they want to get out and be wild and do their thing. So that's why the kids are always bringing me energy. And now it's cool that there's older people that can do it their whole lives and enjoy it. But like when you're around kids who are really fired up, you're like, whoa, this is what I want to do. You know, I would like to know as well, give us a little update about the latest issue. I think I saw the cover for the October issue on, on Instagram. And if you could just tell us a bit, some of the highlights, I love the covers as well. I don't know who is your design team, but it's impressive. Our design team, it's Adam Cregan and Cameron Padgett. They're two guys. They're really cool. Yeah. No, they do a fantastic job. I don't know. I mean, that issue in general, it's, it's exciting because we have Breezy on the cover. This is our fifth woman to appear on a Thrasher cover. And right now, they're a very exciting generation of women skaters, which is super duper cool. It's my mission to get the best and coolest of them involved in what we do. When I was a kid, I never saw a woman on a skateboard or a girl on a skateboard ever. And then in the nineties, I saw three, you know, and I featured them in the magazine. So this is really, really cool. So Rihanna Gearing's on the cover, doing a really cool trick. She's got a cool outfit on right there. I don't know, like philosophically design wise, we've got certain departments and we've got certain things that are consistent and other things that are more freestyle. In general, as the last print magazine, my mission has changed a little bit. I'm not as concerned with progression because it was a space race, the skate tricks for so long. And now it seems like it's more of a renaissance time. And some, you probably seen this, some kids want to dress up like it's 1991. Some kids want to dress up like it's 1981. And it's like, people are integrating all the different styles of skating. They can skate a ramp, they can skate a pool, they can skate a handrail. So I try to represent that. I try to show that. I try to tell now that skating is multi-generational, I try to tell bigger stories. So there's simple stories, but I did an article last month that was skaters with jobs. And I interviewed a Washington lobbyist, a brain surgeon, a scientist, you know, all these different career people that love skating, excellent skaters, but who have different careers. To me, that's interesting. Thrasher shouldn't be a fanzine for the pros. It's not supposed to be People Magazine for pro skaters because skating is bigger than that. And you can be terrible at skating, 
and you're still a skater and you're still part of the team, part of the crew. That was Michael Bernat there from Treasure Magazine. Since the pandemic, newsrooms have been pinging back and forth rather than humming along at desks. With many not quite yet back in the office, is the future of the newsroom in a room? No, I think it would be the same. Photographer and senior lecturer at the University of Suffolk, Noah Bowler has published a photo book called Above the Fold, which puts in focus the world's newsrooms. For the past six years, Noah has been taking photos of newspapers' newsrooms, such as the Washington Post, Japan's Asahi Shimbun and the Hindu. Noah's subject is labor and the built environment. Sebastian Stevenson meet Noah over a coffee and a bun in the Irish seaside of Bray Beach inside. And he asked him what was the one newsroom to Noah that stood out. They're all interesting for different reasons. I think for me to have the access that I've had, for people to trust the work that I make and to trust me sort of in their environment. I suppose one of the important things to point out here is that when I organize photographing in these newsrooms, as you'll tell by the images, there's nobody in them. And that's quite a difficult thing to organize in this day and age, as newspapers run generally 24-7, whether it's an evening print run or a morning print run. So a lot of the access was organized on a Sunday morning at about 6 a.m., where it was generally the quietest place or the quietest part of the newsroom. When I walk the floors, I kind of come in with a plan in my head, but I sort of let the space respond in some way. So I try to take as much time as I can just to think about the space. I tend to walk the floors, look at the desks, look at the details of the office, and you get a sense of the people that work there. You get a sense, whether it's coats on the back of chairs, there's kind of shoes under the table, there's piles and piles of paperwork on each desk. As the project develops, or has it developed over time, I began to notice changes in the office space themselves. One of the earlier spaces I was a huge fan of because I think it, it was probably the oldest space, which was the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. It looked like the newsroom hadn't been changed or upgraded in any way for many, many years. And there's, a, there's an attraction to that for me. There was kind of a nostalgia to it. You know, you could picture the room full of journalists. You could picture people smoking. You could hear the sound of typewriters and all those kind of cliches. As kind of I moved between more modern news offices and newsrooms that everything began to look kind of the same. You know, and those similarities were the traction. The furniture was very similar. The newsroom could have been countries apart, but some of those little aesthetics were all the same, whether it was the chairs, the desks. But what made each one slightly different was the evidence of people. And those little details, whether it's photographs on the desk, as I say, items of clothing, and that space almost begins to speak a small bit. I think the future of this will be different, though. I think, like a lot of office spaces, I think this idea of, you know, working together in a, in a communal space and trying to make it something for that individual will be gone. I think we're now going to be hot desking, if, we're even, if even we're allowed to have a desk to begin with. And I think those elements are going to change in the way we see work and the way we adapt to it. It's interesting you said about, you know, if because uh, that was an observation when reading through the copy you provided me, that if you weren't paying attention necessarily to the images, you were sort of skimming through it, you might think you photographed just one newsroom. And it's only when you look at sort of the index at the end of the book that you see that actually we went from the New York Times, Washington Post, Asahi Shinbun. So that was something you maybe lent into a little bit? Yeah, and I think what I wanted to be able to, I mean, you're 100% correct. Some of those spaces, they all look like it could be the one building. And I wanted people to consider that 
a lot of the time, especially in this world now, when we're looking at information and news and it's, you know, we're scrolling through screens, what I was, in some ways I was trying to get across is that there's a huge amount of people involved in creating genuine news. There's a process that involves human decision making. And and it's sort of a reminder, I think, that those levels do exist from editorial to correction to management, that we can see all those levels within the paper somewhat. We can see the amount of desks and tables and chairs and the cost to generate actual news. But, you know, I think it's an important reminder that actually genuine and real news does involve people and not just a tagline or a hashtag or something. And looking at newsrooms, do you find anything in terms of because now most newsrooms are virtual or or they're not quite back in the physical newsroom. Do you think there is a value in a physical building from what you saw? And I guess that, you know, messaging over Slack or Zoom just doesn't quite cut it. I think so. I think I think we've all learned that the value of human contact at some level. I mean, there has to be a way to fact check and talk and meet each other in any kind of office environment to be inspired. That said, over the years, I've revisited many newsrooms that have been kind of even done up in the time that I was doing the project. And you noticed there was a move towards the open plan where everybody sits together and was supposed to be more productive. I think you'll then find that there was a lot of noise. Everybody has to wear headphones so, you know, they can concentrate. There was then this development of quiet spaces within the newsroom, which almost seemed counterproductive. You'll see it in modern offices too, that there were small little rooms that are soundproofed or boxes you could go to to make a phone call. One of my photographs of the Wall Street Journal, you'll see those two, kind of they look like modern telephone boxes. And what they are, are there's only limited space to stand up in really, to go and have a bit of quiet private time and to make a discussion or to make a call that no one else can hear. So you're seeing these evolutions within the office and how we think and how we work. And I think that's evident as well between some of the pictures. Did you find that some newsrooms had kind of made the space their own a little bit? You know, obviously some buildings and spaces, humans can kind of work around a particular obstacle or some, you know, a column is in the middle of a way, but they make it work somehow or become sort of part of a a kink or something or tradition. I, I don't know if there is anything like that in what you came across in the different newsrooms because you would think that an open plan office would be the default for a newsroom because there needs to be a lot of back and forth or, or shouting depending on you know maybe what area you're talking about. So is that something that you came across or was there actually, was every building perfectly functional and they, there didn't need to be these kind of workarounds? That's a, that's a good question. And I think the, one of the first buildings, I think you'll, you'll find with the older buildings, that they have this kind of culture and character under their own. And one of the prime examples, I suppose, was the the Washington Post, which I was lucky enough to photograph before they moved building. I think they moved to a new building about four years ago. So the building I'd originally photographed was their famous building that you'll see kind of pictured in all the president's men. And it has all that kind of those ideas of people smoking in their office space, typewriters, and it has all that sort of history and architecture and culture associated with it. The Hindu actually was the other one, and the Hindu has been there for about 200 years in that building. And like, it's, it's just an incredible piece of architecture, and it's the soul of the kind of the city and a community as well. And you get a real sense of its vision. It's sort of as kind of an activist newspaper over the years as well. And there's a sense from all the rooms and offices in there that that is still their feeling and their attitude. As things change to more modern buildings, you begin to see all those little elements fade, and you begin to get this sort of 
the generic workspace that we consider, you know, with similar furniture, desks, windows and layouts. Was there a different feel or atmosphere from one newsroom to another? Yes. And I think, well, well one of the things you was really almost obvious was there's a big difference between East and West. When this project began to kind of expand further, you know, when you go to places like Japan, I'd spent time in Tokyo with the Asahi Shimbun and the Miori Shimbun. And what you got there was a different sense of the way news is produced because their focus was still much more on the paper circulation. Their online presence seemed to only sort of beginning at that stage, whereas from kind of a more westernized perspective like us, we'd already been kind of moving online with a long time with the New York Times and The Guardian, etc. There was no brawler there. His new book, Above the Fold, is out now. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fbandmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to it again at monaco.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Skateboard with Parfimert Yogesco. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time. It's goodbye from me. <laughs>